Philippians chapter 4, verses 14 through 23. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in early days of our acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I am looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. This is God's word. Better now, Patrick. Thank you. Great. Well, this morning we are concluding our series through the book of Philippians. Uh, I don't recall how many weeks we've been going through this, but it's a series we entitled Gospel Mission, Gospel Community, Paul's Vision for the Church in Philippians. And if for any reason you've missed part of that series, uh, you should know you can actually go back and either listen to or read uh, past sermons on the webpage. I don't say that because there's a test or anything like that. But uh, one of my prayers throughout this series, as we've been wrestling with and listening to what God is calling us to as a congregation, and our vision to be a gospel-centered community living each day on mission for Christ, one of my prayers is that this series through Philippians would be particularly helpful for us as we think about that calling and that vision This book is all about partnership in the gospel and for the gospel. We've said that several times. And when Paul uses the word gospel, he's talking about the good news of the God of of what the God of the universe has done to establish his kingdom over all creation and to deal with the, the main problem of creation, our sin, human rebellion to deal with that through the life, death, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. Christ became human. He lived a life of perfect obedience to His Father. He died a rebel's death on the cross for our sin. And He rose victoriously on the third day to conquer sin and death and to give new life and hope to all who believe in Him. That's the gospel message. That's the hope of Christianity. And that's what Paul wants us to place at the center of our lives, at the center of our personal lives, at the center of our relationships with each other. And he wants that to fuel and direct our purpose, our mission as His people on this earth. We share together in the gospel, helping one another to Delight in 
Jesus and to depend upon Jesus. And we share that gospel message with the world that others might find that joy and freedom and new life and hope in him. And as we've mentioned before, this note of gospel partnership, that's the note that Paul opened the book on clear back in chapter one, when he thanks God for the Philippians, quote, partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, back in one five. It's also the note that he now closes the book on as we come to our passage this morning. Listen to verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share or fellowship in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership or fellowship with me in giving and receiving except you only. And remember, when Paul talks about fellowship, he's talking about something other or more than just coffee and cookies for 30 minutes after the service. He's talking about sharing life in an honest and humble way so that we can deal with sin, our sin, the sins committed against us, the sin of this world, so that we can deal with it honestly because we have a sufficient hope and solution in the grace of God through Jesus' blood. And so it's laboring together side by side. If you think of fellowship, think of the fellowship of the ring, you know, Tolkien's epic. It's that kind of partnership. Compatriots bound together in a great cause. That's the picture. And as Paul brings this letter to a close, he wants us to know that this partnership, this fellowship that we have in the gospel and for the gospel is ultimately a matter of worship. Partnership in the gospel is ultimately a matter of worship. So what do we mean by that? Well, let's pray together and then we're going to look uh, at this passage. Lord, we do thank you so much for the chance, for the privilege of your grace to be forgiven to be bound together into a new family, to be adopted into your family through Jesus and to be sent forth on a mission to serve your kingdom. Lord, that is the desire of our hearts. And I pray that this morning as we think about it and we think about what Paul is saying here in this passage, we would see how this calling to trust you and treasure you individually and corporately is ultimately a matter of, of responding to you in worship. So give us eyes to see you this morning. Give us hearts ready to be changed. And we pray that you would change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Partnership in the gospel is ultimately a matter of worship. But what do we mean by worship? And we hear the word quite often. You know, if you think about the word worship, how that's used... Uh, on the street or on television, it often has to do with how we treat celebrities or people that we love. You know, his fans worship him. We hear the word used that way. Or he worships the ground she walks on. So if you are a child of the 80s and 90s, you'll remember Wayne's World and their reaction to their heroes. We're not worthy. You know, we're not worthy. No other children of the 80s here, apparently. 
It's my childhood right there. You know, but so where does this language come from, though? You know, he worships the ground she walks on. We're not worthy. Well, it comes from the world of religion. That's where it comes from. You think of, you know, a pagan temple with a large idol in the front of it and crowds of people around it bowing down on their knees before it in worship. That's where we get some of this language. Now, in the sophisticated West, you know, we've quite gotten rid of some of that nonsense and superstition of bowing in temples, but it doesn't mean we don't treat other things like God. That ultimately is what it means to worship something. It's to treat it like God. Uh, you recognize its worthiness. You know, we're not worthy. You are worthy. We're not. So you recognize its worthiness. There's something special about it. It, it deserves your affection, your attention. You cherish its presence. So, you know, if you've ever been to a concert and had the privilege of being close enough where the one singing, you know, slaps your hand, gives you a high five in the concert, what do you say afterwards? I'm never going to wash this hand again, right? You, you cherish the presence of your God, you know. Or, you know, he worships the ground she walks on because her feet stepped on that carpet. This is now sacred space. That's, that's how the, the language works. We cherish its presence. We look to it for life and identity and hope. Your God is your savior. It is the answer to all of your problems. And so it deserves to be treated in a certain way. You recognize its worthiness. You cherish its presence. You respond appropriately with your affection, with your attention and with your obedience. So whether you're in, you know, uh, pop culture or pagan religion, that's pretty much how it works. Now, for Christians, the way we often use the word worship is to talk about church. We that's what we do when we come to church. We come to a worship service. You have in your hand a worship folder or bulletin. We sing worship music. So worship is what we do when we come to church. And then when we go home, we do something quite different. At least that's how we use the word. What does God have in mind for worship? And what does it have to do with what Paul's talking about in our passage? I want you to notice the language of worship that Paul uses here. Take a look at verse 18. I have received full payment and even more. I'm amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Think about that imagery. A fragrant offering, a, a, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. If you're familiar with the Bible, what other parts does that remind you of? Old Testament, right? Back to the sacrifices and the worship system in Exodus and Leviticus and books like that. So Israel's, ancient Israel's worship was often bringing a spotless animal uh, to be sacrificed and burned on the altar in the temple in order 
to bear God's wrath against uh, Israel's sin, as in Leviticus 1. Listen to the similarity that we hear in Philippians here. If his offering, uh, the priest's offering, is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. It shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him, to cover his sins. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So when Paul describes the Philippians' gift to him, and to the church for the advance of the gospel. He describes it with language of worship, a pleasing aroma, a sacrifice acceptable to God. Look also at verse 20 in Philippians 4. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. As he's thanking them for their partnership in the gospel, he concludes this, this whole book by saying that all of this is ultimately aimed at making God glorious. It's aimed at God's glory. That's language of worship again. To glorify something is to celebrate its worthiness. It's to make much of it. It's to treat it like God. That is worship. So this whole enterprise of Partnership in the gospel and for the gospel, gospel community, gospel mission is ultimately a matter of worshiping God, of making God big. Not in the sense of that he's small and we have to make him look bigger than he is, but showing and responding to how big and, and amazing he is. Of recognizing his worthiness, of cherishing his presence and responding appropriately. Which means that if we're not sharing life together, if we're not you know, living lives of grace and humility in our relationships with each other, and if we're not bringing that message to others, then in some way we're not treating God like God. We're not worshiping Him. Now, worship is different in the New Testament than in the Old. We saw kind of a picture of what it looked like in the Old. We're no longer under the Old Covenant with laws about sacrifices to deal with our sin because Jesus Christ and His sacrifice on the cross was the ultimate sacrifice, the final sacrifice to God uh, on behalf of our sin. Hebrews 10.14 says, By one sacrifice... Jesus has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So there's no other sacrifices necessary to deal with our sin. Jesus' blood was enough. So we don't worship God by bringing sacrifices, uh, animals, to the altar. Yet through Jesus, God's people are still called to worship Him. Not with sacrifices, but with our whole lives. With our whole Lives. Now, part of that is what we're doing right now. Gathering together under God's word to make much of him, to respond to him, to be changed by his spirit, to respond in prayer and in song, 
sometimes in sacrament of the Lord's Supper or baptism. Now, that is part of our worship, our recognizing God's worthiness and cherishing his presence and responding appropriately. But treating God like God is much bigger than what we do Sunday morning. And this is not new. You know, in the Old Testament, uh, when Israel's first king, Saul, offered sacrifices to God but disobeyed God's word, Samuel the prophet responded by saying, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. So, worship has always ultimately been about an obedient life. It's always been about that, but even more so for the people of God in Christ. It's what we do to honor God with all that we are and all that we have as a people who've been purchased by his blood. We belong to Jesus, and so we live lives of worship. Paul says elsewhere in Romans, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, because of his mercy, to present your bodies, all of you, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So we're not talking about gifts we bring. We're talking about me, a living sacrifice, all of my life set apart to make much of God. That is our worship. And central to that worship is what Paul's been talking about in this book. Sharing life together around the gospel of Jesus and for the gospel of Jesus in its advance that others might know him. And there are two ways that that kind of partnership, uh, that kind of worship is expressed in our passage. First, worship, our worship to God is expressed in our genuine concern for one another. Our worship to God as we partner together is expressed in our genuine concern, the way we love and care for one another. And this one actually goes back to verse 10 from last week, where Paul started this note of thanks to the Philippians. He said there, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Now, we mentioned last week that the word concern there, the word that's translated there, concern, is the same word that's translated elsewhere in Philippians as mind or thinking or perspective. We've seen it a lot. And, and we consequently talked quite a bit about the necessity of having a gospel-shaped perspective, a way of seeing the world that treasures and prioritizes Jesus instead of self. And so we'll not spend a lot of time on this except to note that this genuine concern and affection for one another that comes from treasuring Jesus is ultimately an act of worship to God. See, our love for one another is not just about us. It's about him and responding to him. His reputation is at stake. His worthiness is what motivates us. So you think of a child performing uh, in a choir. You know, you get them all up front, and what are they doing? They're looking for mom and dad so that they can wave. Now, they're working hard to pay attention to the director, 
they're working hard to work together, you know, to make a, a joyful noise to the Lord. But ultimately, this is about making mom and dad proud. And so they want to find out where they are. And so the same thing happens in our love for one another. We really do or really should love one another. But ultimately because we want to honor God. That's our greatest prize. That's our greatest motivation. So worship is expressed in our genuine concern for one another. But the bigger emphasis in this passage is the worshipful nature of how the Philippians showed their concern. How they expressed their concern through their sacrificial giving, through their sacrificial giving. And so second, worship as partners in the gospel is expressed by giving sacrificially to the cause of Christ, by giving sacrificially to the cause of Christ. This is verses 14 through 20. Now, Paul has already gone out of his way. To make sure that the Philippian church knew that his joy was not contingent on his needs now having been met. We saw that last week in verses 11 through 13. That his joy is the kind of joyful contentment that travels above our circumstances. It doesn't go up and down when life goes up and down. It's consistent because it's based and rooted in Jesus, not in our situation. And so he's... He's thankful for the gift, but not because his needs are being met. Rather, he says uh, in verse 14, it was good of you to share in my trouble. So he's genuinely appreciative. Uh, and, and not only that, he commends them for their faithful service, their partnership with him when no other church did. And look at verses 15 and 16. Moreover, As you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I was just beginning to preach it among you, when I set out from Macedonia, which is where Philippi is, no one church, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. So, This church was a model of sacrificial giving. They were a model of giving generously as a sacrifice, an act of worship. But what do we mean by sacrificial giving? What does that language mean? Listen to how Paul describes the generosity of the Macedonian churches, the churches in the region of Macedonia. Uh, Philippi was one of those. Listen to how he describes their generosity as a model of sacrificial giving. In writing to the church in Corinth, Paul says this. Now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty Welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. 
And Paul later explains that the reason that the church in Corinth doesn't have to give money to support him is because the church in Philippi was taking care of that. So this church in Philippi was a model. They didn't just give what they had left over. They didn't, you know, set out at the beginning of the week and, and spend, you know, whatever they wanted and needed. And then, well, if there's something left over, that's what I'll give to God. They didn't give just what they had left over. They didn't give when they were enjoying abundance and then cut it off when they were in need. You know, we can't afford it. They didn't give when things were going well, but then circle the wagons when they ran into trouble. They gave despite their suffering. They gave out of their poverty. They gave not just according to their means, but beyond their means. They adjusted their lifestyle in order to be able to give more. Think about that. They gave as a sacrifice. It cost them something. They had to say no to something in order to say yes to their giving. That's what we mean by sacrificial giving. It costs us something. It means adjusting our lifestyle in order to give more. And they gave joyfully, begging Paul for the opportunity to to help out. Because they weren't giving to Paul. They were giving to God. Their giving was an act of worship. It was an act of worship. This is part of what Paul was so excited about in their gift. Again, it's not because his needs were met. He says that again in verse 17. Not that I'm looking for a gift. That's not my interest here. Rather, he continues, I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. So, Paul knows that there's just as much benefit for the giver as there is for the receiver. The Philippian church was blessed to be parting with their money because it meant being able to participate in what God was doing to advance his gospel. And because it was a tangible reminder that our true inheritance and reward is Jesus. It's Jesus. There is a blessing that comes with generosity, with sacrificial giving as an act of worship. Now, of course, our generosity is bigger than just our money. God calls us to be generous with our time. He calls us to be generous with our uh, our skills and talents, our gifts. He calls us to be generous with our service, with all of life. Let's not forget that though the Philippian church was giving sacrificially to Paul's mission, they too were engaged in the same conflict as him. So in their own city, bearing witness to the gospel of Jesus, just as Paul was doing in Ephesus or Rome, wherever he's writing from. Nevertheless, when we stop and think about it, there is a pretty direct line from our hearts to our wallets. It's a hard thing to do. And so we need to ask, how is this kind of sacrificial giving to God for the cause of the gospel possible? What is this? What makes this possible? Well, first, it's only possible if we treasure Jesus more than we treasure our stuff. It's only possible if we treasure Jesus more than we treasure our stuff. 
That's a simple but very profound truth. And just as the decision over whether to buy a vanilla latte or a caramel latte, you know, I value drinking one of those more than I value the other. Okay? So I'm going to make a decision based on my value. In the same way, the decision to give in such a way that it affects my lifestyle depends on whether I value my lifestyle more than I value Jesus. Do I recognize his worthiness? Do I recognize that there's nothing in this earth that compares to him? And this, this is a message, this is true for all of us. So children, students, you know, if I value my completing my Star Wars Lego collection more than I value Jesus and the happiness and joy of knowing him and helping others know him, then I'm never going to understand why someone would want to give away money for that when I could be buying more stuff. It won't make sense. Now, I love Legos. There's nothing wrong with Legos. But do I treasure Jesus more than I treasure my stuff? That's the question. Is he my satisfaction? Is he my reward? Treasuring Christ costs us something. It means choosing not to treasure something else. But really, if you look at it, it's like exchanging dirt for gold. Nothing can compare to the reward we have in knowing Christ and serving him. So, sacrificial giving is only possible if we treasure Jesus more than we treasure our stuff. Second, sacrificial giving to the gospel, to its advance, is only possible when we value the eternal destiny of lost souls more than we value the temporary security and pleasure of this life. Think about that. Let me say it a different way. Giving generously to churches, to ministries, to people who are who know Jesus and are helping others to know Jesus is only possible if I see, uh, if I care more about seeing someone escape the terrors of hell than I do about living a comfortable life. It's a value thing again. Do we believe that there's something more wonderful in this world than the greatest riches and treasures here and something more terrible than pain, poverty, and death. There is God, either in his presence for all eternity or away from his presence for all eternity. There's something greater than the greatest riches in this world. There's something far worse than poverty and death, either being in God's presence or away from it forever. So I'm not going to give sacrificially if I don't believe that. If I don't believe that. This is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 6 when he says, you know, investing in God's heavenly kingdom is a far better investment than anything else in this world. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
So sacrificial giving requires valuing the eternal destiny of lost souls more than comfort in this life. Third, sacrificial giving for the spread of the gospel is only possible if we trust God to supply our needs. If we trust God to supply our needs. This is maybe the hardest one of them all. This is what Paul reminds us in verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. That's a promise. As we give generously and sacrificially, we can trust God to supply our needs. Giving generously to God is a statement that I recognize that I'm not in control. I'm not in control. I need him. It's similar to the idea of taking a Sabbath, a day of rest from my normal work. You know, what sense does it make if you're trying to get ahead in life or just keep your head above water to take a whole day off from work each week? That's 52 extra days of productivity in a year that you could be using. What sense does that make? Doesn't make any sense except as a reminder that I'm not the one in control of my livelihood, that I need God. And so I step away as a weekly reminder to say, he's the one ultimately in control of all of this. So it forces me to trust him to supply my needs. That's the same thing that's happening in giving generously to God. It's, it's saying, God, you're in control. I'm going to trust you. And so the question is, do I really trust him to do that? Again, this is this for me personally, this is the hardest thing. Do I really believe that if God's asking me to give generously, to give in a way that I have to make some changes in the way that I live to help with that cause or that need? Do I really believe he's going to supply my needs? Takes faith. Do I really believe that all of this money and stuff belongs to him anyway? And that I'm a caretaker on his behalf. Do I believe that he's really in control and that he really is good? He's not going to take advantage of me the way someone on earth might. Do I believe that he is more generous than I can imagine? That he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all will also with him graciously give us all things. Romans 8.32 Now, we recognize that some of those needs God gives us in advance in this life. He blesses us. Some of them wait for the new creation, for the Lord's return. Do I trust God to be wise enough to know which ones I need now and which ones can wait? Those are hard questions. Those are very hard questions. But again, giving sacrificially is a statement that I'm not in control. That I'm trusting God that he is wise and generous. So sacrificial giving, it requires treasuring Jesus more than stuff. It requires valuing lost souls more than personal comfort. And it requires trusting God to supply my needs. Finally, sacrificial giving 
to the cause of the gospel is only truly sacrificial if it's done as an act of worship. If it's done as an act of worship. Some take a verse like 19 and they pervert it. They twist it to think that it's some sort of formula for earthly gain. So God is this cosmic slot machine. I put my money in, I pull the handle and the riches come flowing out. And that's why I give in order to get. Even worse are phony preachers who feed people these lines on television and radio or even in churches in order to take advantage of them and line their own pockets. It's pretty common. The ultimate motivation for giving in this passage and throughout the Bible is not what we get out of it. It's what God gets out of it. It's worship. It's worship. He gets our trust. He gets our praise, our dependence. He gets his glory. We treat him like God by trusting and treasuring him. We recognize his worthiness. We cherish his presence and we respond appropriately by giving him all of our lives. By counting everything in this world as loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And so we partner generously and sacrificially in the gospel together and for the gospel's advance. Now, one of the beautiful yet sometimes frustrating things about the New Testament's teaching on giving is that it doesn't lay out numbers or percentages. It would be nice if it did. How much? You know, uh, it doesn't do that. We see people giving to the local church. We see people giving to missionaries out planting other churches. We see people giving to those in need. But we're never told how much am I supposed to give. We're never given a percentage of our income. Under the Old Covenant... For ancient Israel, they were called to give a tithe, a tenth of their produce and livestock. Under the new covenant in Christ, the focus is exclusively on giving from the heart. I think there's something beautiful about that. Because it's not about, you know, doing it out of some legalistic check the box off thing. It's asking, what's my treasure? How can I give out of my heart? You know, spiritual maturity, knowing Jesus, has nothing to do with how much or how little we have. You see a lot of godly rich people in the Bible, and you see a lot of godly poor people in the Bible. Just as you see a lot of ungodly rich people and ungodly poor people. So, we give according to what we have, not according to what we don't have. We give sacrificially, so that it affects our lifestyle. We give generously, trusting God to supply our needs. And we give from our heart, according to our ultimate treasure. That's the the test, the standard for giving in the New Testament. It's not about figures and percentages, but from our hearts. I think 2 Corinthians 9-7 summarizes it well. Each one must give as he has made up in his mind, in his heart. Not reluctantly, 
nor under compulsion, out of guilt or pressure, for God loves a cheerful giver. We give what God has laid on our hearts, not to please someone else or impress anyone else. Now, I thank God that like the Philippian church, Westgate has a reputation for being a very generous church. And we need to give praise and glory to God for that. It means that several of you have had the opportunity to taste and experience the joy Paul's talking about in giving generously. But I don't want that to let us not hear this message either. And you need to know that as a pastor, I don't know what anybody gives to this church. I don't need to know. We have deacons and treasurers who handle those things with wisdom and integrity. Moreover, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. Because I want to be free. When we come to passages of scripture like this and other ones that talk about giving, sometimes uncomfortably, I want to be free to preach boldly and faithfully what God is saying without anybody wondering, am I talking secretly to them? So I don't know your pocketbook, nor the condition of your heart. But I do know that giving sacrificially to the cause of the gospel is a direct reflection of our value for God. It's a direct reflection of our value for God. It's an act of worship. Either worship of God in generosity and sacrifice, or worship of something else in self-protection and self-indulgence. So the call to partner together in the gospel, for the gospel, our vision to be a gospel-centered community living each day on mission for Christ is ultimately a matter of worship. It all comes down to how we treasure and trust God and make much of Him. And for that reason, it all depends on grace. It all depends on grace. As Paul signs off his letter, the last few verses, he closes by extending some personal greetings back and forth, even greetings from the members of Caesar's own household who had come to faith. If you think about the irony there, as one author puts it, Paul may be in prison at Caesar's pleasure, but the gospel has penetrated Caesar's own household. Think about that. We're going to stick him in jail so that nobody else can hear And here, his own household has been penetrated by the gospel. It's a beautiful irony. But Paul's final line in this book is not just a customary conclusion. That's very common. It's a reminder that what makes this whole vision of partnership in the gospel possible is grace. It's all of grace. So grace is when God gives us something wonderful, even though we deserve something terrible. Okay? We deserve death and hell for our sin, for our rebellion against God. But because of what Christ has done for us on the cross, God offers forgiveness, new life, adoption into his family, and he sets us apart for his purposes if we will believe. That's grace. We were on death row and instead we're brought to the king's dinner table. That's the picture. And without grace, none of this is possible. There's not a single person in this room who's worthy to be in God's presence, 
who's capable in and of yourself to trust Jesus, let alone help others come to know him. None of us left to ourselves are able to follow Jesus's model of laying down our lives that we see in this book. We think too much of ourselves and too little of God to do something like that. None of us are able to part with our dearly beloved finances by ourselves, left to ourselves. We need grace. We need grace. We need the Spirit of God changing our hearts because of what Jesus has done on the cross in order to treasure Christ instead of something else. We need grace. That's the only hope we have for being faithful to our mission, is what God has done through sending Christ on the cross and in his resurrection. May we never think that we can move on from grace. May God be pleased to shed his grace on this congregation. May the time that we've spent in this book of Philippians, may it, may the time that we've spent thinking and praying about what God's calling us to as a congregation, may it be more than what we do Sunday morning, and may it be more than just what some piece of paper says in the foyer. May it be, may our worship of God not end when we leave this room, but rather may all of our lives make much of God. Our whole life. May our hearts be captivated by Christ. Not this world, not ourselves. May we be satisfied in Him, compelled by His vision. And so, may that overflow into relationships that are marked by grace and humility as we treat one another according to the model of Christ. And may it overflow in a passion to see lost people come to know Jesus here in New England and to the ends of the earth. May God do that by His grace. That is our prayer. I think that's the prayer of this book. And so may He receive the glory due His name. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so, so unworthy and so utterly dependent on You. And yet, because of your cross, we can lift our chins high, knowing that we are loved with an everlasting love by a God who will meet all of our needs according to his glorious riches, so that we don't have to cling tightly to this life. We can instead cling tightly to Jesus and so be used by you for what you've placed us here for, to make much of your name, to help others come to know you, To live in such a way that you get the glory, the honor, the praise and recognition that you alone deserve. Jesus, we ask that you do it among us. In your name, amen.